The following message is brought to you by New Song Church and Pastor Joshua Blunt in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. For more information on New Song, visit us online at newsongpeople.com. Last week, we kicked off this series, Pastor Josh, a great message called The Possibility of Prayer. Wasn't that message so good? It was so good, so powerful. Uh, One of my favorite that you've ever done, babe. It was awesome. Um, If you haven't listened to it, make sure that you check out the podcast. But as he uh, kicked off the message, he talked about how the disciples witnessed Jesus doing all sorts of things, all kinds of signs and wonders and miracles, yet they only asked Jesus to teach them to do one thing. They didn't say, hey, Jesus, can you teach us to turn that water into wine like you turned water into wine? Hey, Jesus, can you teach us to walk on water? They didn't say, hey, Jesus, can you teach us where to shop for a garment like that, like that people could touch that garment and be healed of a lifelong illness. Where did you get that garment? They didn't say, hey, Jesus, will you show us how to sermon prep? Like Sermon on the Mount, whoa, how did you do that? Like, did you write that message verbatim or did you just put like bullet points on your little tablet? Like, how did you prepare that message? Teach us how to do that. That's not what they asked him to teach them to do. They said, would you teach us to pray? Teach us to pray. Look at our text for the series together with me. It's on the screen, Luke chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. It says, one day Jesus was praying in a certain place, like he often did. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray just as John taught his disciples. The disciples had watched Jesus interact with his father time and time again. And here's what they're saying. Jesus, we want with the father what you have with the Father. Have you ever seen a couple um, or maybe a, a son and a father or a mom and a daughter and they just have like a really special relationship? Like you just see the connection, you see the bond and you think, man, I want what they have. I hope that my kids someday, my goal is that they see the love between Josh and I, and when they're about to get married, when they're engaged, that they would come to me and say, hey, we want what you and dad have. Will you teach us to marriage? This is what the disciples are doing. We want to have what you have with the Father. Will you teach us to connect with heaven? Will you teach us to talk to God? Will you teach us how to have that close and intimate and personal relationship like you have with the Father? Will you teach us to pray? And so Jesus teaches them to pray. He goes into what is known as the Lord's Prayer. And the Lord's Prayer is found in both Luke and Matthew, but today we're going to look at it in Matthew chapter 6. So if you have your Bibles, open them up to Matthew chapter 6. I have a ton of content for you today. This probably could have been a two-part message, but I packed it into one. I got a ton of content, so I'm just warning you, like, get your pens out, get your papers out, get ready, open the app, click on services. You can see your sermon notes, fill in the blank, take good notes this morning. You guys ready? All right. Somebody say, teach us to pray. Matthew 6, we're going to read this together. The words are on the screen. Ready? Let's say it. One, two, three. Three, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts 
as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Now we all know the Lord's Prayer. Even if this is your first time to ever set foot inside a church, you have heard this prayer on multiple occasions. The movie, The Quiet Place 2, it made my point for me. I went to go see it a couple of weekends or a couple of days ago. And at the very beginning of the movie, there's a man in the prayer or in the movie that begins to pray this prayer. Like saints know this prayer and ain'ts know this prayer. We all know this prayer. We've heard it multiple times. Now, right before Jesus lays out the the answer to the disciples' request to teach them to pray, which is also in the Sermon on the Mount, we see him say this in verse number seven, Matthew six. He says, when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Now, interestingly enough, I think this, the Lord's Prayer, is the most vainly repeated prayer of all prayers. Even though Jesus made a point to say, do not pray, do not pray vain repetitions, people still do it all the time with this prayer. I was watching a a, a series on Netflix about a junior college football team. And before every game, before every practice, these football players huddle together and they vainly repeat the Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Blah, blah, blah. Amen. Win on me, win on three, one, two, three, win. And there's something, and if you've seen the series, you know, <laughs> there's something that tells me that these football players have no idea what they are saying or how powerful who they are saying it to is. So they're, they're praying this prayer. They can repeat this prayer, but it's to no avail which is heartbreaking because scripture says that the prayer of a righteous person will avail much, but it won't avail much if we're just vainly repeating something. So we have the vain repeaters of this prayer, and then there's the avoiders of this prayer. When I was growing up, I looked at this prayer as a prayer that religious people prayed. And those of us, like myself, who had a real relationship with God, and God and I are tight, I don't need structure, I don't need boundaries, I don't need a lane to stay in, I can talk to God however I want to talk to God. This is for religious people, and I'm not religious, I'm non-denominational, and I don't put God in a box, so this prayer is not for me. But here is the problem with that. Jesus said, somebody say, Jesus said, said. pray like this. Jesus said, pray like this. He didn't say, pray what's ever on your heart. He didn't just say, talk to me about your day. Jesus said, don't just repeat this prayer. He said, pray like this. Listen, you don't know better than Jesus, and I don't know better than Jesus. So if Jesus is laying out a teaching model for prayer, I want to learn the prayer, I want to study the prayer, and I want to model my prayer life after this prayer. The Lord gave me this this week as I prepared for the message. I want you to write it down. The Lord's prayer is too good to pray in vain, and it's too good to think you're too good for. It's too good to pray in vain. And it's too good to think you're too good for. We have no idea 
like heathen football players and Christ followers alike, how powerful, how perfect, how countercultural, how amazing this prayer is. We've become too familiar with it. So today we're going to go line upon line through this teaching model. And uh, to help us grasp the weight of it, we are going to take a field trip. We are going to leave America 21st century America, and we're going to head to the Middle East. And I, I need you all in this moment to go ahead and just take off your Western civilization, American glasses that you filter scripture through. Go ahead and put those aside. We're going to the Middle East to the time when Jesus taught this prayer, the culture, the people, uh, because as familiar as we are with this, when Jesus presented this in the Sermon on the Mount and to the disciples, you have to understand that he was blowing every mind of every person listening. Like he was coming in like a wrecking ball and he was tearing down beliefs and traditions and ideas that people had when it came to approaching God and prayer. So let's look at his first blow. Somebody say, teach us to pray. pray. Matthew 6, 9, he says, our father in heaven. Now, that statement doesn't seem that earth-shattering, right? You're like, whoa, because this is how we pray. This is how we've been taught to pray since we were little. We pray, Father God. We pray, Heavenly Father. We pray, Our Father in heaven. We all know those people that pray, Father God. They start their prayer that way, and then they say it every three seconds in that three-minute prayer. Father God, thank you for this day. Father God, I ask you to be with me today. Father God, I ask you to bless this food. Father God, would you order my steps today? Father God, Father God, Father God. So Father God is, is a pretty customary way for us to address God. But this was not the case for Middle Easterners in Jesus' day. This really short salutation, our Father in heaven, these four words, it would have been a head scratcher for sure for the people listening, especially the Gentiles, because they were uh, accustomed to really long over-the-top salutations, like way over-the-top, way overboard. They would, they would greet somebody or address somebody who was in power. A great man in power, you better go overboard with how you address them. In fact, I brought a, an example from history. This is a salutation. This is to one Caesar. This is how he was to be addressed. The emperor Caesar Galerius, Valerius, Maximinus, Invictus, Augustus, Pontifex, Maximus, Germanicus Maximus, Egypticus Maximus, Phoebicus Maximus, Sarmenticus Maximus, five times, I will spare you, Persicus Maximus, Carpicus Maximus, Arminicus Maximus, Medicus Maximus, Abendicus Maximus, holder of the tribunal authority for the 20th time, emperor for the 19th, council of the 8th, proconsul. This was their salutation. Dear Caesar did not cut it. They didn't want to offend their gods. They didn't want to offend people in power. So they went over the top with how they addressed them. So these four words, our father in heaven, they were blowing people's minds. They were expecting that when Jesus says, teach us to pray that he was going to start with, oh God, 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 creator, 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 king of kings, master of the universe. They were, they were thinking it was going to be something along those lines. But instead, Jesus says, our father in heaven. We sometimes think that long prayers equal good prayers, effective prayers, and that short prayers are childish and immature. But Jesus here in his teaching model of prayer, he contradicts that belief. Ecclesiastes 5, 1 through 2, it says, guard your steps 
and focus on what you're doing as you go to the house of God and draw near to listen. Listen is also a part of praying. Pastor Josh is going to talk about that next week. It then says, do not be hasty with your mouth, speaking careless words or vows or impulsive in thought to bring up a matter before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. This is what Jesus was modeling here. A salutation, these four words, but every word was carefully selected and every word was matchless in power. Jesus is modeling, let your words be few and powerful. Now, not only was the salutation in this prayer just blowing people's minds, but the language in which Jesus started the prayer was for sure causing a murmur throughout the crowd. Pastor Josh talked about the murmur in the crowd. When he started this prayer, our father, it was our Abba. Abba is not a Hebrew word. It is an Aramaic word. So Jesus starts this prayer in Aramaic, and if he starts it in Aramaic, then we can assume that he's going to finish it in Aramaic. Who cares? Like, why should we care what language Jesus taught this prayer in? Well, Kenneth Bailey, who wrote the book Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes, which is incredible, and I am pulling a ton of content from today, he says the language choice is important. Here's why. Because Jesus lived in a world where the public reading for the Bible was only in Hebrew, and prayers had to be offered in that language. So when Jesus starts this prayer in Aramaic, you know there's a murmur in the crowd, and Jesus knows exactly what he's doing. He's making a huge statement. And here's what he's stating. He's declaring that Christianity doesn't have a sacred language, that you don't have to come to him and, 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 and be able to speak Hebrew to do it. You don't have to pray in Aramaic. You don't have to pray in New King James. You can pray the language of your heart. There is no secret language, sacred language, and there is no sacred culture. Jesus came to tear all those walls down. Jesus came to blow that stuff up. He came to inaugurate a new age of of praying. Jesus is modeling that we can come boldly to the throne no matter what language we speak. The language of our heart is more important than the language of our tribe. Now I want to uh, circle back to the word Abba here. Our Father or our Abba. In this model prayer, in the middle of this declaration of the kingdom, the manifesto, what the kingdom uh, looks like and what kingdom living looks like, Jesus uh, is blowing up some ideas of insiders and outsiders, of Jews and Gentiles. He didn't say, pray like this, O God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He said, pray like this, our Father. What he's saying with his few and powerful words is the kingdom of God is about a family. And it's about a family that goes beyond the bloodlines of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What he's saying is, I don't have to have a racial tie. You don't have to have a racial tie to Abraham in order to have a relationship with the father like Jesus had a relationship with his father. Notice he didn't say my Abba, but our Abba. You know what that word our does? It causes us to look down the aisles of our church. It causes us to look across the nation, across our state, across the globe, 
and realize that this is the family of God. It brings us together in unity. When, the, when the, the, the country is, we see disunity all over the country, but we also see it within the body of Christ. I feel like the body of Christ is more, there's more disunity there than ever before. But when we pray this way, our Father, Jesus is reminding us that he's not just my Father. He's not just my denomination's Father. He's not just my race, my tribe, my country's Father, but he is our Father. It speaks to unity in the body of Christ. Jesus could have chose any number of words to address God with. He could have said our King. He could have said our Majesty. He could have said our Creator, our Master. But he said our Father, Abba. Now when I think of the word Father, I kind of think that's like the formal word for father. I never use that word when I'm talking to my dad. I don't call my dad father. I call my dad dad. Um, I think that we have this aversion to the word father um, in large part due to George Lucas because there's that iconic scene in Star Wars where Vader says to Luke, Luke, I am your father. And so we associate that word father with like this Vader type of father who is cold and distant and somebody that we address that way because we're terrified of them. But that is not the Aramaic picture of the word father. The Aramaic picture of the word father, it indicates a profound personal relationship between the one who uses it and the one who's being addressed. It also indicates that this person, this Abba is somebody that I yield to. I yield to their authority because I know them and because I trust them because of the profound and personal and intimate relationship that I have with them. And a lot of Middle Eastern countries, well, a few, I say a lot, I think there was four Middle Eastern countries, uh, Abba is still the first word that many parents teach their children. It's like mama or dada here. Like I wanted Gus's first words to be mama and dada. They weren't. It was car. Remember car? <laughs> but but I, I remember having a picture of Josh when Josh was at work, and I would say, daddy, daddy. And of course, when Josh got home, daddy. And eventually, Gus started to say it back to us, literally back to us. He said, did da instead of daddy and it just stuck josh became dida and dida is is that word like abba it represents the the profound and close and intimate relationship that my kids have with their father it represents that dida is a person that they yield to his authority because they know him and because they trust him jesus is speaking to this model of father and child approach him as a child of god but he's also wanting to make us aware and remind us that our father is not like any earthly father. He's our father in heaven. He is in heaven. Yes, he's close. Yes, he's ever present. Yes, he's approachable. Yes, he wants to have that personal and intimate relationship with us. But at the same time, we have to remember that Abba is seated in heaven in his awesome majesty, his majesty. Our father is different. He is in heaven. This is why we have to guard our steps and focus on what we're doing as we approach him. He's our father in heaven. Jesus is modeling how approachable he is, 
and how he desires intimacy with his children. But at the same time, he's the majesty of heaven, our father in heaven. We're just four words into this thing, and Jesus has modeled so much. He's modeled so much. Let's, let's move to the next line here. He says, hallowed be your name. Our father in heaven, hallowed be your name, or holy is your name. You may have heard it translated. Now we think this is the part in the prayer where Jesus just wants us to remember that God is holy and that his name is holy. But there's actually a request in this line, hallowed be your name. Let's look at that request. Hallowed be your name means may it be made holy. May it be made holy, comma, your name. Hallowed be, may it be made holy, your name. So Jesus is inviting us to pray that. Would you make your name holy, God? Which kind of seems like a weird prayer. Like that seems like praying, God, would you make the fire hot? Would you make the water wet? Because God is holy and his name is holy. So what is Jesus, what's his angle here? What he's wanting us to do, he's inviting us to ask God to demonstrate his holiness. Make your name holy by demonstrating your holiness. We see this in Ezekiel chapter 36, Israel God bless them. They're in another one of their perpetual cycles of dysfunction, and they are murdering people. They're worshiping idols, and so God drives them out of the land. And in the process of this, God's holy name was defiled by the onlooking nations. They were saying their God, the God of the Israelites, he must be too weak to save his people, and this did not sit well with God. Look at verse 21, what God says. This is God. He says, Then I was concerned for my holy name, on which my people brought shame among the nations. Therefore, give the people of Israel this message from the sovereign Lord. I'm bringing you back, but not because you deserve it. I'm doing it to protect my holy name on which you brought shame while you were scattered among the nations. I will show how holy my great name is. This is what Jesus is inviting us to pray. God, show us how holy your great name is. Instead of praying, God, save our country, we need to be praying. Demonstrate your holiness to our country, to the onlookers, to the naysayers who say his ways are ancient. He is not real. He doesn't care about his people. Where is is God. Demonstrate your holiness to these onlookers. Make your name holy. Instead of praying, God, make my name great, we need to say, God, your name is important to you, more important than my name, more important than the name of this church. It's your name. Demonstrate your holiness. May it be made holy, your name. You know what else happens when we pray like this? We become more aware of God's holiness, and that's not a bad thing to be more aware of his holiness. Because when we're aware of his holiness, we become aware of our impurities. We become aware of where we're missing it, where we are failing to glorify God, when our actions aren't lining up with his will for our lives. We become made aware of that. And I know you're thinking, that's not, I don't want to be made aware of that. I'd rather just have my blind spots. But listen, when you're aware of your weakness, scripture says it's in your weakness that his strength is made perfect. It's made perfect. So yeah, I want to be aware of your holiness. I want to be aware of your weakness so your strength can be displayed in my life. Jesus modeled a desire for God to demonstrate his holiness. Next, he says, your kingdom come, your will be done 
on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus says, pray like this, your kingdom come. But what is God's kingdom? Like, what does that really mean? What can we be expecting if God actually answers this prayer for his kingdom to come? What does that look like? I have a definition for you today, and I want you to write it down. If you have a paper Bible, I want you to flip to the front of your paper Bible and write this in the front of it. Because as you read through scripture, you're going to see the kingdom of God come up over and over and over again. And when you're praying for the kingdom of God, here's what happens. We kind of like get lost in what that really means. And it just becomes words that we're saying. So we need to keep coming back to this definition, which is the kingdom of God is the rule and reign of God, advancing here on earth, bringing healing and wholeness by chasing out the chaos. The kingdom of God is the rule and reign of God here on the earth, bringing healing and wholeness by chasing out the chaos. Now we see in scripture this riddle that is the kingdom of God. It is both now and not yet. It is both here and it is far off. Another way that you could say it is the kingdom of God is already here with even more to come. The kingdom of God is here in the earth right now. His rule and his reign, it's advancing in the earth already. The kingdom of God is in us. The kingdom of God is here bringing healing and bringing wholeness, chasing out the chaos. But guess what? There's even more to come. And Jesus is modeling for us that we have a part to play. We have a part to pray and bringing that even more down to the earth. What if we prayed like this? And what if he answered our prayers? What if we prayed, God, I want more of your rule and your reign in my life, in my church, in my city, in our country, in our government, in our world. We want more, God. And we're going to be the ones to bring the even more here on the earth. God, your kingdom come. It's here but we desire even more of it. Do you desire more of his kingdom? If you desire more of his kingdom, you'll make this a part of your daily prayer life. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. So often our prayers are centered and focused on our will be done. What we want to happen. But Jesus here is saying, no. (laughs) You're definitely not gonna wanna pray that way. You're going to want to pray, God, your will be done. But why don't we do that? Why sometimes do we have this hesitancy to utter those words, God, your will be done? Sometimes those seem like scary words to say. And here's why. I think deep down, there's a part in all of us that somehow the enemy has come in and he's lied to us. And we think that God's will is going to kind of suck. Like, I don't want to pray that way because I'm afraid that your will's not going to be what I want that it's gonna kind of suck. But Romans 12, two says, do not be conformed by the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you can test and approve what God's will is, his good and perfect and pleasing will. Not his kind of okay, horrible, sometimes sucky will, but his good and perfect and pleasing will. 
write this down. God's will does not suck. It doesn't. It's good and perfect and pleasing. Now, I did not say that God's will is always going to be comfortable, that it's going to be easy, or that it's going to line up what we think is good and perfect and pleasing. That's not the case. I'm not going to lie to you and say that that's what God is saying. Listen, Elizabeth Elliot says, what God means by happiness and goodness is a far higher thing than we can conceive. It's far higher. What you think is good and what God thinks is good are two probably totally different things. We can't conceive what he thinks is good and perfect and pleasing. Sometimes uh, when things get hard and uncomfortable and, and it's not what we were expecting to happen, we can look back later and see that it was part of God's good and perfect and pleasing will. He knows the end from the beginning. He is the alpha and the omega. He's in the right now, but he's also in your future where you are not. He can see things that you cannot see. His will is good and perfect and pleasing. And we need to trust him. We need to trust him so that we aren't afraid to pray, your will be done. Not my will, but your will be done. When I was in the fifth grade, a group of varsity cheerleaders from my high school that I would attend eventually, Union High School in Tulsa, they came to Bovers Elementary and little fifth grade Sarah Newsom was mesmerized. They came in, they had their awesome uniforms on, they had these perfect high ponytails and red ribbons, they had their white ASIC tennis shoes with the red stripes and their crew cut socks, and they did this cheer and they threw up a stunt and they were all so happy and pretty, and they said, we're getting ready to have cheer tryouts, and they handed out these flyers and said, you should come to this clinic and try out for cheerleading, and I was like, Yes, this is what I want to do with my life. I am going to go to that cheer clinic and I am going to be a cheerleader. And I brought the flyer home to my mom and said, Mom, I need you to take me to this clinic. And she was like, okay, you don't know anything about cheerleading, but here we go. And that year, there was hundreds of girls that tried out. I went to a 6A school district, kind of like Moore, one high school, hundreds of girls, 50 girls made the squad, and I was one of those 50 girls. I don't know how, but I made it, and I was right. I loved everything about it. Like, it was just as I imagined. I loved the pom-poms and the uniforms and the pep rallies and creating those big banners that the football players would run through. Like, I loved everything about it except the dreaded tryout week that would come around every year. Every year you had to try out for the squad again. And every year the squad got smaller and smaller and smaller. When I was in sixth grade, there was 50 of us. But by the time I was in ninth grade on the junior varsity squad, there was only 16 of us. And when I was on junior varsity, our varsity squad was amazing. They won the national title. And I was with them at Disney World. It was on ESPN, the wide world of sports. They won the title. It was awesome. And, and that's what I wanted. I wanted to be a varsity cheerleader. I wanted Friday night lights. I wanted to compete like that at Disney. I wanted to go to the clinics and, and, and help the little cheerleaders. I wanted to go to the elementary schools and recruit future cheerleaders. All I wanted was to be a varsity cheerleader. But of course, you had to try out for varsity just like you had. Two for all the other squads. So the tryout week rolls around. It's the most stressful week of my 16-year-old life. I worked so hard and I prayed so hard, but I did not make the squad. They had to cut two girls and I was one of the girls that got cut and I was devastated. I had this shirt 
Some of you may remember these dorky shirts, but I had this shirt that said, cheerleading is life, the rest is just details. You remember those? I had that shirt, and it was true. It was my life, and so I was crushed. I was devastated. Now, my family knew how much being on the varsity squad meant to me, so they had been praying for me, a lot of prayer going into that week. But when my grandma found out that I did not make it, she wrote me a little card, and she dropped it in the mail, and it's one of these profound moments in my life, I don't keep anything. I'm not sentimental. I throw everything away, but I have held on to this card. I've held on to it. It's still in my office, and I want to read you what she wrote me. She says, to our precious Sarah, I know your disappointment is great. Count your blessings for the years you enjoyed cheerleading. I tried. <laughs> it didn't help. It still hurt. There's great competition in all activities, sports, band, and many disappointments when you're the one who doesn't make it. Grandma didn't pray for you to make it. I was like, wait, what? Grandma. (laughs) Grandma, I was counting. It's probably why I didn't make it. I needed, you're my prayer warrior and you weren't praying for me. It says, Grandma didn't pray for you to make it, but for God to have his will. I know it's hard to understand now, but 1 Thessalonians 5.18, which would become a life verse for me, says, in everything give thanks for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus. Where one door shuts, another opens. God's will, not mine. This is her little cut and paste, like grandma version of cut and paste. She probably got this out of guidepost. The best grandma anyone could ask for. God's will, not mine. That's my goal when I bow to him in prayer. I know he'll do what he deems best when I cast on him my prayer or my care. The keynote of every prayer should be your will be done. We love you and fill your hurt, Grandma Wagner. This was the first time in my life that it dawned on me that sometimes, a lot of times, oftentimes, my free will is not going to line up with God's will for my life. So instead of praying, God, help me make the squad, God, help me make the squad, I should have been praying, God, I'm going to try out, and if it's your will, help me to make this squad. But if it's not, I don't want anything to do with it. I want your will to be done in my life. Your good and perfect and pleasing will. And even though it didn't seem good or pleasing or perfect at the time, I can look back now and see that God's hand was all over it, that I was to walk through the trial, walk through the disappointment. I was able to graduate a year early, which I never would have done if I made the squad. I was able to marry that man the year I was supposed to be graduating. Like God had everything all lined up. So we've got to pray, your will be done, God, not my will. It's got to be the keynote of every prayer. Next, he says, give us this day, our daily bread. Give us this day, our daily bread. When you begin to dig into this phrase, you'll learn that this is so much more than asking God to give you enough food for the day. The literal translation is give us today the bread that does not run out. Give us today the bread that does not run out. Jesus is saying, hey, every day, 
daily, you need to confront a spirit of lack. Confront that spirit of lack and say, I believe that you're going to supernaturally provide for me, that you're going to be my sustainer spiritually, mentally, physically, emotionally, in every area, the perfect bread of life you're going to give me and I'm not going to run out of it. I, I, that spirit of lack that keeps me up at night, that keeps me from, from sleeping, that, that makes people kill themselves work themselves to death, lie, cheat, steal, create idols that they worship, money, mammon, that spirit of lack that has people bound up and worried and praying prayers that aren't in line with God's will, you need to confront it every day, daily. Remind yourself that he's going to provide for you the bread that will not run out. So many of our American prayers are for more. God, give me more. I need more financial security. I need more material things. I need more blessings. But here, Jesus is modeling something totally different. He's not saying more. He says, ask Abba to give you enough for today. And with that confidence that he's going to take care of you again tomorrow and again the next day. He's going to give you a supernatural bread, provision that does not run out. Notice it's bread, not cake. Not cake, but bread, the necessities, what we need, God. I want what you know that I need, not all the extras. And also notice that it's our bread. Give us today our bread, not my bread. Again, this points us back to this is a family. And what God freely gives to us, we hold an open hand. We hold with an open hand. We are to be self-giving people self-giving, what he gives to us. It's our bread. It's not my bread, but it's for the family of God. Next, Jesus says, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Or you've probably heard it, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who have sinned against us. So what is it, sins or debts? It's both. They're two different things. Sin is an act that we commit that is not in harmony with God's will for our life. Something that you do, a sin against God. But a debt is not something that you do, but it's something that you left undone. It's an unfulfilled obligation to God or to uh, our fellow human beings. Something that you should have done, that you should have said, but you didn't. There's sin and debt. And here Jesus is modeling the need for us to ask forgiveness for both daily. I think sometimes as Christians, we think as forgiveness as this one-time dramatic act that happens at the very beginning of our journey with Jesus. But Jesus is modeling something different here in this prayer. He's saying it's something that you need daily. Forgive me of my sins and my debts daily. Do you know what happens when we do this? Jesus knows that this is for our benefit. When we pray to ask God to forgive us of our sins, he knows that with that is gonna come a release from guilt. You're carrying around this guilt for, or this shame for what you did. That thing that you did, there's shame that comes with it. And when you say, forgive me, he knows that that's a release of that shame. Or when you come to him and say, forgive me for what I knew I should have done, could have done, would have done, but didn't do. And you're carrying around that guilt that he releases you from that guilt. Forgive me for my sins daily, my debts daily. 
And with that, you receive freedom from guilt and from shame. And it also helps us with the next part of this prayer, which is as we forgive our debtors, as we forgive those who have sinned against us. This is the part of the Lord's Prayer that we don't really like. Up to now, it's been good. Like, yes, he's going to provide for me. Yes, I'm gonna, he's going to demonstrate his holiness. But here, this is something that you are to do. You are to forgive those who have sinned against you, those who are in debt to you for things that they should have done, but they didn't do. We have to forgive them daily. But we don't like to do this because we feel if we pray this way, Abba, forgive that person. Forgive them for lying about me. Forgive them for cheating on me. Lord, I release this person because they said they were going to be, be there for me, but they were not. I forgive them. We think when we do that, that we're saying, like, it's a never mind. Like, it doesn't really matter. Like, never mind what that person did. Never mind that they cheated on me. Never mind the Jim Crow laws. Never mind the Holocaust. Never mind the bombings. Like, we just got to forgive and forget. Forgive and roll over. But if you've been genuinely hurt by someone or something, God's not asking you to condone the sins committed against you. That's not what he's looking for, for you to just condone it and say, you know, I just never mind. It was fine. What he's wanting you to do, he's asking you to forgive for a reason. He's asking you to forgive so that the bitterness and the anger and the hatred and this desire to seek vengeance, that it is poured out of your life. Not just so that it can be poured out of your life and you can say, I don't have bitterness or anger. He's wanting that stuff to be removed from your life so you can pursue justice effectively. He wants to empty you of those things so you can pursue justice effectively. Look at this. I love this from Kenneth Bailey. He says, the world despises this theology of forgiving others. Because it thinks that anger is necessary to fuel the struggle for justice. We've seen that. If we want to see justice, we got to be angry. And that forgiveness will dissipate that anger. The Christian disagrees and replies, no, I will forgive and I will struggle for justice. I may still be angry, but my struggle for justice will be purified by forgiveness. My struggle for justice will be purified by forgiveness and therefore become more effective. We think that anger is going to burn this, uh, ablaze this path to justice. And that if we forgive, that that fire is going to just be put out. But really, when we forgive, it just helps that path be clearer. It helps us to get there more effectively. Listen, God cares about justice. In Micah 6, 8, it says, the Lord God has told us what's right and what he demands. So what is it? What does he demand? What is right? It says, see that justice is done. Justice is important to God. But look at the next part. Let mercy be your first concern. If mercy is not your first concern, then the justice that you are pursuing, you're never going to see. Let mercy be your first concern. We have to forgive. Mercy is giving somebody something that they don't deserve, giving them the forgiveness that they don't deserve, forgiving them even when they never asked you to forgive them. 
Just the way that Jesus has forgiven us and given us mercy that we don't deserve. Forgiveness, daily forgiveness is important. It purifies our pursuit of justice. Jesus is modeling, receiving, and extending forgiveness daily. And then last, he says, do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Do not lead us. Think about that word lead. Imagine that you are taking a trip and you're going to the most dangerous jungle in all of the world. And you have to make it through this jungle alive. If you are smart, you are going to hire a leader, a tour guide, probably a native who can take you through this jungle and take you through it safely. And as you employ them, you are going to let them know that um, part of their job is to lead you not into danger. Like if I'm about to step into a dangerous snake pit, would you throw up your arm? Like give me the mom arm and stop me from stepping into that danger. When we pray like this, God, lead me not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. We're praying, God, would you be my guide today? I am, I am asking you to come and lead me. The world, this, we live in a jungle. The world is a jungle. I need you to be my guide. I'm giving you permission to throw up your arm and stop me before I step into that dangerous pit, before I fall into that temptation. We're saying, Abba, your children, your word says children are led by the spirit of God. You say we can interact with you as children. So God, my father, would you lead me by your spirit? Lead me not into temptation and deliver me from the evil one, the, the demonic energy that's at work in this world, the plans that the enemy has designed to take you out. God, would you deliver me from those plans? Any plans the enemy has against my family, would you thwart those plans? Stop those plans. God, I am giving you permission to be my guide, asking you to lead me today. I don't want to go through this jungle without you. I need you. Jesus is modeling dependence on God. Teach us to pray, they said. We want with the Father what you have with the Father. Teach us to pray. Jesus said, okay, pray like this. Let your words be few and powerful. Know the language of your heart is more important than the language of your tribe. Pray in unity with the family of God. See God as both Abba Father, close and intimate, and Heavenly Father, majestic and holy. Ask God to demonstrate His holiness. Realize you have a part to play in bringing God's kingdom to the earth. Pray for God's will, not your own. Confront your spirit of lack. Receive forgiveness. Extend forgiveness and purify your pursuit for justice. Depend on God's guidance every day for his is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever amen if you would stand to your feet with me today as we close i want to say the lord's prayer together and um, my hope my prayer is that this hits or as david terry says that this slaps this slaps harder than it slapped when we said it uh, at the first of the service, uh, after we've heard this teaching on the Lord's Prayer and unfamiliarized ourselves with this prayer, 
I want you to think about each word and what you're saying as we say it together. And then I want to encourage you, as you pray this week, you know, on your, uh, on your commute to work or as you're putting your kids to bed, think about this model for prayer. Is this what your prayer life looks like? Are you not just repeating this prayer, but are you modeling your prayers after this? Hitting these things that Jesus says we should pray like this. We should cover these things when we pray. Be mindful of it. I believe that as you do, you're going to see God answer your prayers. You're going to connect with heaven like the disciples witnessed Jesus connecting with heaven. Let's say these words together. One, two, three. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us of our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Somebody say amen. Thanks for listening to this week's message from New Song Church. If you have a prayer need or would like more information about New Song, you can email info at newsongpeople.com. If you would like to partner with New Song through giving, go to www.newsongpeople.com forward slash give. And if you want to stay connected to New Song, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter by searching for New Song People.